We lost power in the parsonage about 10 o'clock last Sunday morning. But I was here, of course, and then after that we had a lunch appointment. So we didn't get back to the house till about 4 o'clock in the evening. And uh, contrary to our hopes, there was no power. So Sham and I were in the basement within an hour. We, had, we were sitting in the relatively dim light of about five candles and uh, a fireplace that didn't have any fan blowing any heat into it. And wondering whether we should stay the night or go to Vijay's place because he, he fortunately had power. When all of a sudden Sham said to me, she said, I wonder how Millard is doing. Uh, Millard is a pastor from Egypt who's staying, whether he's studying at Tyndale, and he is waiting for his wife and children to join him, and he's uh, in, in the duplex next door. Now, I would never have thought of that thought. Obviously, it didn't occur to me at all. But as soon as she said it, I marched over with some candles and some matchsticks and um, blankets and whatnot, and he needed all of those things, and all was well and good. But you see, this is one of the big difference, huge differences between my wife and I. She has the spiritual gift of mercy that naturally and automatically draws her to think about people who are in need in a way that I don't. And she also has the gift of hospitality that focuses on making other people comfortable in their places. Now that doesn't mean that because I don't have those gifts that I'm not supposed to attempt to be merciful and hospitable. But I'll never be able to do it like she does. That's the whole point of spiritual gifts. All of us don't have all the gifts. Some of us have them, some of us don't, and which is why we need each other in the body of Christ. And it would be extremely unfair to expect people who don't have a particular spiritual gift to be as effective in its exercise as people who do. In fact, there are hundreds of you in this church who are far more merciful than I am and would be far more welcomed in a hospital than me. But I suspect you would die a thousand deaths if I asked you to come and preach here every weekend three times, right? (laughs) Now you say all of this is obvious. Why are you talking about it? Well, the next beatitude we're talking about needs to uh, raise this question like this. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now if mercy in that beatitude refers to the spiritual gift of mercy, then my wife has a huge unfair advantage over me. She's far more merciful than I ever will be, which means she's going to get a lot more mercy from God than me. That sounds unfair to me. It should be to you too. Hundreds of you who don't have the gift of mercy, you're in trouble too. So I kind of think there's probably something more to this mercy that is being talked about here. certainly includes the more obvious understanding of mercy as responding to need. But I think there's more than that. Something that's perhaps primary. I want to go back once again to the psalm that we've gone back to many times during this Beatitude series, Psalm 51. King David has suddenly been confronted by the prophet with his own sins and he's crying out to God for forgiveness. And this is what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Twice in his opening prayer, he refers to mercy, but in the context of needing forgiveness for his sins. And therefore, applied to God, mercy would be that disposition of God to be gracious towards people who have sinned against him and to forgive their sins. This understanding of mercy in the context of the Beatitudes would seem to be underlined even more or emphasized because in the next chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something very similar when he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. So, 
You show mercy, you will receive mercy. You forgive others, you will receive forgiveness. So it would seem to suggest again that for both of these reasons that the mercy that is primarily in view in this beatitude is that which enables us to forgive the sins that have been committed against us. And so, unlike the gift of mercy, which is unequally distributed, this one applies to all of us. Every one of us have people who have offended us, and all of us are called to forgive them. And therefore, this is not an unfair kind of thing. This applies to all of us. So I'm going to develop the rest of this message with this particular emphasis on mercy, that mercy is a change in disposition in us towards people who have sinned against us. The change in disposition that allows us to be gracious to them and forgive their sins. This goes well beyond meekness. Meekness, as we learned, was a control of anger. Meekness was willing to hold our rights loosely. And meekness was willing to let God be our defender. This goes beyond meekness to mercy, to actually see the person who has hurt us as someone who needs something that we have and we are able to give them and are willing to give them that which they need, which is forgiveness in this case. Now, if you look at it in this way, it also embraces the other understanding of mercy as just simply giving people what they need. Because if the person who has offended us asks for our forgiveness, that means they understand what has been done by them to us. And they are longing for us to say to them, it's okay. And that is a gift that we can give to them. If on the other hand, they don't know, or they do know, but they don't ask for forgiveness, they are still a very needy people. Because they're in bondage. <laughs> they need to be set free from, this unf- from a refusal to ask for forgiveness. And so again we are drawn to a sense of need in the person. So this, this definition of mercy encompasses both of them. Just simply responding to need, but specifically the change in disposition that allows us to be gracious and forgive people their sin. Now just like all the other Beatitudes, this one also would have come as a tremendous shock to the original hearers. First of all, in the pagan world, historian Rodney Stark in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, writes this. He says, in the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion because mercy involves providing unearned help or relief. It is contrary to justice. Thus, humans must learn to curb the impulse to show mercy. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. Showing mercy was a defect of character, unworthy of the wise, and excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. So it would certainly be a shock to the pagan world. It was also a shock to his original audience of Israelites. Now they of course understood the need for mercy. Their psalms were full of prayers for mercy. And Israel often pleaded with God for mercy. But to show mercy to the Romans, that was something else altogether. Gentile occupiers of the land, there they wanted vengeance. They wanted God to come and punish their enemies and to vindicate them. And so even for them, this statement would have come like everything else as a shock. That's why we've called this whole series living right side up in an upside down world. Everything Jesus taught in the Beatitudes was upside down from what was the prevailing opinion. So now that we understand mercy, uh, or the what the word primarily means. I want to look at the second half. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And of course, as Matthew 6, he goes on to say, if you forgive others, you will be forgiven as well. This tells me right away that we are dealing with something incredibly serious. Because there is nothing more important in life, no more question more important than, will God be merciful to us? God is holy, you and I are sinners, and when we ask God for mercy and ask God for forgiveness, will he answer that prayer is the single most important question for us in life. Because our eternal destinies are at stake. 
So we are definitely dealing with something very serious here. But we're also dealing with something perplexing as Christians. Because at face value, this beatitude would seem to suggest, like the statement on forgiveness, that it's conditional. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive them, you won't be forgiven. Well, that sounds very much like a conditional forgiveness and conditional mercy. It sounds like we earn mercy from God by being merciful to others. We earn forgiveness from God by being forgiving to others. Yet we also know from the rest of the New Testament teaching that that is contrary to the gospel of grace. This amazing grace that we've just been singing about. So, what is going on here? Here, here's, let me unpack it for you. Here's a way of thinking about it that has helped me. It may or may not help you. If it doesn't help you, you need to keep wrestling with it until you come up with some understanding that makes sense of this. Consider with me for a, for a moment how somebody feels, how they are thinking when they refuse to forgive somebody. If I refuse to forgive Bob for something that he's done for me, if I refuse to show him mercy, then what I'm actually thinking is he doesn't deserve it. I'm not going to show it to him because he doesn't deserve it. I may even want to make some amends. Maybe I'll just make him sweat for a while. Or maybe I'll expect him to do certain things. And then I will be merciful to him. That's the kind of thinking that will make me withhold mercy from this person. Which of course means that my understanding of mercy is that mercy is something that is earned. That somebody has to make amends or suffer in some way or the other before they become worthy of the mercy that I give to them. That's the, that's the kind of thinking that will make us withhold mercy from somebody. Now that much is clear. Now if a person thinks like that about mercy, now apply that understanding that they have to their relationship with God. If they're going around telling people, or they believe that they have been forgiven by God, according to their own understanding of mercy, they must be thinking, that's because I have made amends. I have suffered enough. I have made amends. I've jumped through certain hoops. Therefore, now God has been merciful to me. Of course, that would be completely wrong because they did not get mercy from God because they successfully made amends. They got mercy from God completely undeserving. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Is that if you withhold mercy from somebody and it is in your power to give it, then it betrays an understanding of mercy that gets all messed up when, it apply, when you apply it to your relationship with God. So, on the other hand, if I understand that I've been truly forgiven by God apart from anything that I have done to earn that forgiveness, mercy is never deserved. It's always undeserved. You cannot make amends for it. Then I will naturally or much more likely at least think of it in that way when it comes to my relationship with someone who's offended me. I think that's how these two things are related. And so here's a way you may want to put it. Our mercy to others doesn't earn mercy from God, but is a proof of the genuineness of our faith that secures our forgiveness. Our mercy to others doesn't earn mercy from God, but is a proof of the genuineness of our faith that secures our own forgiveness. If I am merciful to somebody without making them pay amends, that is saying to everybody, that's the way I relate to God. And then you're on safe ground. Because that is exactly the way you need to relate to God to receive mercy from Him. Now Jesus takes this one step further in one of the stories that He told. He told the story about, about a king uh, who was settling accounts with his servants and discovered that one of his servants owed him a huge amount of money. Or whatever it was that he owed him. Worth a huge amount of money. 
And when he discovered that this guy couldn't pay it, he ordered him and his wife and his children to be sold as slaves so they could generate money to pay for it. And so this poor man falls on his face and says, King, please, please have mercy on me. Just give me time and I will pay it back. And the king was so moved by pity that he forgave him his debt. Astonishingly, in the story, this servant goes out and finds another servant who owns him, owes him a lot less money and chokes him. Puts the fear in of man into him to say, you need to pay that back. That man does exactly what he did before the king. He falls down on his knees. He says, please be patient with me. But this man says, no, I'm not going to be patient. And he throws him into prison. And so when the rest of the servants find out and report it to the king, the king is furious. And he calls the servant and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all this. Should you not be forgiving the other person? And then Jesus, and, and therefore he throws him into prison. And then Jesus says, That's what my heavenly father will do to those of you who do not forgive others from their heart. Well, what's Jesus saying here? The point of this story is the disproportionality of the two deaths. In in modern day terms, what the servant owed the king was about $20 million. What the other guy owed him was $2,000. That's the point. What Jesus is saying in the story, what the king is saying is, I forgave you $20 million and you can't forgive $2,000? I think that's the point Jesus is making here. He wants us, when it comes to this issue of receiving mercy from God and giving mercy to others, He wants us to think in terms of the vast disproportionality between the mercy that we have been shown and the mercy that we're being asked to show. The mercy that we have been shown is mercy for sin against infinite majesty. You and I are not infinitely majestic and no sin against us is in that category at all. And so I think that's the next thing you may want to jot down is the fact that Jesus asks us to see the enormity of the mercy we have received in comparison with the smallness of the mercy we are asked to show others. He asks us to see the enormity of the mercy we have received in comparison with the smallness of the mercy that we are asked to show others. And when we see it this way, then forgiveness and mercy flow more easily came across an interesting story by a district court judge in Ohio by the name of Paul Herbert. And as part of his judging, he often apparently had to deal with prostitutes who had violated the law and had to pass sentence on them. And he was a heartless and a ruthless judge apparently until something happened to him and these were his words. He said, the Holy Spirit continues to reveal how much I have been forgiven and how similar I am to these individuals that come before me. That's really hard to say because my job is to judge them. But the further I go along in my faith, the more I realize I'm just like most of them. And that makes me more understanding, more kind and more merciful. And actually that insight led him to establish a program of rehabilitation for the very prostitutes that he used to pass judgment upon. So that they became fruitful members of society and were liberated from the bondage that they were in. He understood exactly this principle of the massiveness of the forgiveness that came to him from God that therefore allowed him to be forgiving and merciful to the people that he was otherwise judging. Okay, we've established so far we've understood mercy as a change in our disposition towards those who have sinned against us. We've understood the connection between this mercy and this mercy, that it's not a matter of earning our salvation, but demonstrating the reality of our salvation. And thirdly, that we are to see the disproportionality between this mercy and this mercy they were asked to give. What I'd like to do now is to shift my focus a little bit and address a popular misunderstanding of how this is to work out in our lives. This misunderstanding is contained in a very well-known phrase that some well-meaning Christians use to others, and that is, oh, you should forgive and forget. We've all heard that. You should forgive and forget. Is that right or is that not right? 
Well, it is, but not quite the way most people think of it. And that's why it causes more damage than actually help. Does Jesus' beatitude, does this call to show mercy in the light of the mercy we receive, does it mean to forgive and forget? When we first came to this church 42 years ago, one of the couples we met very early on were Rick and Mark Bullard. Some of you know Rick and Mark. Others, if you are newcomers, don't know them. And, and Rick became a very, very close friend and has been a friend for these 40 years as well. Uh, now, Rick in his early 20s was hurt in a hunting, um, shot in a hunting accident which left him paralyzed and consigned to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Well, uh, as Rick explained it to me then, as he himself understood it, fairly quickly, being a Christian, he understood that he needed to forgive this person, and he did. But 20, 25 years later, Rick began to experience some very significant bouts of anger. And he shared some of this stuff with you guys as well. And being a wise enough man, he didn't ignore or stuff all of this, but began to deal with it, got some help uh, through friends and professional counseling, and he realized he realized that the main cause of all this suppressed anger was that he had never really forgiven this brother. It was superficial. The forgiveness was superficial. And the reason the forgiveness was superficial was that he had never fully counted the cost of what had been done to him. And so he learned to count the cost. He named all the ways in which all the losses that had come into his life because of this. He allowed himself to feel the grief, to feel the anger. He acknowledged that these were legitimate feelings of grief and anger as well. And then, then, as a result of that, he was able to break through to the kind of forgiveness from the heart that truly released this person from any debts to him. And recently when, when Rick was in hospital, we had the joy of seeing this man actually go to him and personally ask for forgiveness and for the complete restoration of that relationship. And the lesson that he learned, can, he summed it up for me in these words. He said, we cannot fully forgive until we have fully counted the cost of the offenses against us. Forgive and forget inappropriately applied leads to superficial forgiveness that doesn't really solve the problem. Therefore, you're not able to forgive from the heart, which is what Jesus wants us to do. Rather, we should actually be saying, don't forget. <laughs> Remember. Count the full cost of the injustices that have happened to you. Feel the grief. Feel the anger. And then choose to pay the cost yourself. <laughs> rather than have somebody else pay the cost for it. When you do that, then you become freed to be able to forgive from the heart. And if you were to ask Rick, have you forgotten? Of course he hasn't forgotten. He remembers vividly every single thing that happened. What has happened to him though, is that those memories no longer have the power to hurt. And you know, if you think about it for a moment, that's exactly how God deals with us. When God shows mercy to us for our sins and what God forgives our sins, do you think God forgets? Well, you might say, well, just a minute, doesn't he say, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed my, and I will not remember your sins anymore? Yes, he does. But what does it mean for God to remember and forget? It doesn't mean what it means for you and me. We remember something like, oh my goodness, my wife told me to pick that up and I forgot. You know, that's forgetting, that's remembering. There was a time when it wasn't in your awareness and there was a time when it suddenly came into your awareness. That's what we mean by forgetting and remembering. That is impossible for God. 
There is no past, present and future with God. Everything is an eternal now for him. God never forgets. God never has to remember. Yet what does he mean when he uses those words? I think this is what it means. When he showed up to Moses 400 years later and said, I have remembered my covenant with Abraham, that doesn't mean that for 400 years he had forgotten about it. It means he is now about to take the next step in the working out of that covenant. He is taking it into account. In the same way when he says, I don't remember, it means I have stopped taking it into account in my relationship with you. That's what forgiving, uh, forgetting means. So this is what I think it means. Forgetting means I choose not to take it into account in my relationship with you. Because we're supposed to deal with people in their sins the way God deals with us in our sins. And God doesn't forget. He just doesn't take it into account anymore in the relationship. And so when we have counted the cost, when we have allowed ourselves to feel the legitimacy of the negative emotions like anger and revenge and stuff like that, when we then deliberately choose to let it go and pay the cost ourselves and not demand the other person pay the cost, we don't forget the memories. They just lose their power to hurt after that. And we no longer take them into account in the relationship with the person. That's, I think, a much better understanding of forgive and forget in the best sense of the word. Okay, so we've corrected the misunderstanding. How do I get to this point now? That's the last part of this message. How do I actually get to this point? How do I pull it off? There are no formulas. This is extremely complex. Our individual personalities, the nature of the hurts that have been done to us, uh, their intensity, their duration, how old we were when these things happened. These are all complex, complex contributing factors. And to reduce them into some kind of simple formula would be an insult to the complexity. However, there are two things I think that are absolutely essential in the process of getting to this point. And I think they're essential because the scripture speaks to both of them. The first one has to do with a set of theological convictions. Two clear theological convictions that I think are going to eventually have to come into play in helping us to get to this point of rightly forgiving, forgetting and forgiving. And the story of Joseph is very helpful for this. For those of you who don't know the story of Joseph... Uh, he was a grandson of Abraham, the patriarch of both Judaism and Christianity. And uh, he had, uh, Jacob had 12 sons and Joseph was number 11 down the line and his older brothers didn't like him at all. And that was putting it mildly. He was his father's favorite and as favoritism often does is creates tension between siblings. He was also a dreamer who was unwise in the way he spoke about his dreams. And so his older brothers were looking for a chance to get rid of him. They found a wonderful opportunity to set it up. As, as if a wild beast had killed him and they traded him to a bunch of Midianite travelers who sold him as a slave to Egypt, to Pharaoh king of Egypt. In Egypt, through a series of up and down circumstances that was all orchestrated by God, Joseph ends up in a point where he was actually promoted to second in command. He was asked to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh. He interpreted it as seven good years of harvest that were coming, followed by seven bad, bad years. And so he gave a recommendation to use the seven good years to store up the grain. Pharaoh was so impressed, he promoted him to second in command over Egypt and said, you administer this whole thing for me. So Joseph does that. And then, of course, the famine comes and that in, in, goes into the land of Canaan, which where his brothers and his father were. And these brothers show up one day to him. Ten brothers show up. And, of course, Joseph immediately recognizes them, although they don't recognize him. And after just making sure that these guys' repentance was genuine, and especially that they were treating Benjamin, his, his blood brother, the same way, uh, were not treating him anymore the same way, Joseph reveals himself to them. And, he, and, of course, now they're dead scared. They say, oh, my goodness, this most powerful man in Egypt, 
Now he's in a position to get his own back upon us. So they're naturally afraid and they're talking to one another. Joseph, of course, understands all of this because he knows Hebrew. They don't know that he knows it. And he, and he weeps. His heart is broken towards them. He's merciful. And then he reveals himself to them. And this is what he says. He says, And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, my brothers and sisters, this is very strong medicine. We don't like this kind of medicine. I want you to notice, twice he says, you sold me, and he didn't say, God sat back and allowed it. He said, God sent me. That's God in the active sense. The brothers sold him, but God sent him. What does that say? It says that God is the ultimate cause of the actions of those who hurt us in order to accomplish a greater purpose for their good. That's why I said this is strong medicine. We don't like it. But without this, you will never break through to healing. This is so foundational. You sold me, but God sent me. He didn't stay back as a passive actor. He was active. The verb is active. God sent me here. God chose this particular way to get him there. But it was God who sent him. So that's the first conviction. God is the ultimate cause of the actions of those who hurt us in order to accomplish a greater purpose for their good. Because he ends up saving them. You, know. you say, how can that be? That's mercy. That's amazing grace. That's what we just sang about. They didn't deserve it. Not in Joseph. And then while sending them back after they were reconciled, he sends them back to Cain and says, go bring my father, bring my brother, bring your wives, bring your children, bring everybody, leave everything behind. He then says these words, which is the second conviction. He says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Meaning, I'm not here to judge you. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Not only for their good, for the good of others. Now this is a slightly different statement. God harnesses every evil purpose for good. Mine and others. These two statements are not identical. They are very close. The first one says God is behind the brother's action. The second one says God harnesses the brother's evil actions. Which is purposes for us. So whatever the specifics of your situation. Whatever the specifics of the hurts that were done to you. That is calling forth for mercy. These two convictions are going to be absolutely crucial. God is the ultimate cause behind the actions of those people. And God is able and will harness that for the benefit of yourself and for others. So that's the first crucial element, these two theological convictions. The second one is what allowed these convictions to so penetrate Joseph that he didn't just know them up here, but that he actually felt them here. And that takes us to the second key ingredient. And for that, we want to go back uh, to the Joseph story, a little bit further back in the story before he met his brothers. Uh, after he had, in fact, interpreted the dream for Pharaoh, uh, he was given the daughter of one of the priests to be his uh, wife. And he had two children, and these were the names that he gave the children. Naming was so important. Naming had to do with destinies. Naming had to do with God. And he said, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. He said, for God has made me forget. There is the word. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Here's the secret. God has made me forget. 
And God has made me fruitful. Now did this mean that Joseph forgot everything that his brothers did? That he forgot all the time he spent in the pit? All the time he spent in the... Of course he didn't wipe it out from his memory. But he no longer was taking it into account in the way he was dealing with them. And here's the secret. If the secret wasn't Joseph, the secret was God. God made me forget. And God made me fruitful. See, we're back to God again. Every single beatitude has driven us back to God. The first beatitude, poverty in spirit, desperate dependence. We express desperate dependence in prayer. Blessed are they who mourn. We mourn in God's presence. We confess the fact of our sin, the depth of our sin, the defilement of our sin. And we say, have mercy upon me, O God. When it comes to meekness, where do we learn meekness? Moses learned it face down before God. Jesus learned it face down. And Gethsemane, we plead with God. We bring our offended rights to God and let him be our defender. And when we talk about hungering and thirsting for righteousness, what do hungry people do? They beg for righteousness. They go back to prayer. And we do the same thing here as well. Every single beatitude drives us back to Jesus in prayer that he might make. So this time we go to God and it is in God's presence we remember. It is in God's presence we allow us ourselves to feel the full weight of the offenses that were done to us. It is in God's presence we express the anger even the desire for revenge. It is in God's presence that these theological convictions break through to touch our heart. That God is the ultimate cause behind these actions. That God is going to harness these actions for our benefit. And there are many, many psalms in the scriptures that help us to do that. Here is one example. Psalm 129 verse 1 to 5. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted. No stuffing of emotions here. No pretense that everything is okay. Twice he says, remember your hurts. Say it. Verbalize it. Don't stuff it. Name it for what it is. Don't say things like, oh, they really meant it. They didn't do any, they should have known any better. All those things may be true. But they are powerless. Those kind of things don't help. You got to, in God's presence, say what happened to you. Name it. Including, but then look what he says here. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plows, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. You know what the picture is? The picture is of Israel flat. This was her time of slavery. Flat on her back. And a plowman is walking up and down your back. Plowing furrows deep in your back. That's what hurts are like. That's what offenses are like. They cut deep within us. But then he says the Lord has cut the cords of the wicked. The cords that tied the plow to the oxen, God snipped them. So now the plowman goes up and down, but he can't cut anymore. That's what I mean by of memories that no longer have a power to hurt. What a beautiful picture of that. And even anger. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. So pray your anger. Pray your desire for revenge. It's exactly what we've been learning in God's presence. And then the miracle happens. Then Jesus comes. Then the whole New Testament comes and takes the old much further along. Then we look to the cross. Then we ask him to make us fruitful in the land of our suffering. Then we ask him to enable us to forget in such a way that the memories no longer hurt. And then the miracle happens. Many of you know Rupan and Mamta Das from our church. They're working in Lebanon amongst, uh, um, amongst Syrian refugees. Here's a testimony that he shared once. That is a modern day Joseph miracle. 
He said, their people, the Syrians, killed our people, burned our houses, stole our harvest, and destroyed our economy. Do you think any hurts done to you even measure up? They killed our people, burned our houses, stole our harvest, and destroyed our economy. They occupied our land for more than 30 years. Our hearts were filled with hatred and enmity. I grew up in fear and anger. I escaped bombs many times. We prayed for God to take our revenge, to destroy their land as they did to our land. See, they didn't stuff their hurts. To sink their country with blood and tears. Now it's their turn to pay the price. And this is what's happening. They are paying the price. And then the miracle. Shouldn't we be thrilled? But something strange has happened. Where are those negative feelings that we had? Our hearts are aching for their pain. Our prayers are continuous for their country. Our church is working day and night to help them. To heal their wounds. To wipe their tears and to feed their children. Our love is real and genuine for them. We are serving 700 families now. Many of the families are now coming to church on a regular basis. Many gave their lives to our Lord and Savior. We repeatedly hear, oh, we had a wrong idea about Christianity. What a paradigm shift. What amazing grace. What a wonderful Savior and Master we have. That's a modern day miracle of Joseph. God has made me forget. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. 3,000 years later, it's still working exactly the same way. One last comment and with that we're finished. What if you still don't want to forgive? What if after all this you say, I don't want to. I don't want to. I, 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 I want to enjoy the pleasure of making them pay. And listen, there is real pleasure. Don't pretend it isn't. There wouldn't be any temptation if there wasn't pleasure in getting revenge. If it didn't actually feel good to make the people who hurt you suffer. What I want to say to you is that that pleasure comes at a massive cost under the surface. Because you see, there are not only temp eternal causes, and those are scary enough, that somehow receiving mercy from God and receiving forgiveness is related to this. There are also huge temporal consequences. There is a price you pay for that pleasure of exacting revenge or making people pay. That is below the surface but is colossal. I remember when I first started ministry, it was a long, long time ago. There was a couple whose marriage after many years of turmoil was about at breaking point. The wife, the person I was dealing with primarily, was full of bitterness and hatred. Her only thought was retaliation. So I was able to just walk her through the scriptures and suggested how she might be able to rebuild that marriage. This is what she said. Not her exact words, but the essence of it. She said, but I don't want things to change. For if it does and we start loving each other, how can I get back at him for what he has done to me all these years? Notice, this was not the case of, oh, he will never change. This was not a woman who didn't have any hope that her husband would change. She's afraid he would change. If he changes and I start loving him, then I'm not going to be able to make him pay. I can't imagine a greater bondage than this. What a horrible price to pay for the pleasure of making someone suffer. And Craig Greshel, who's a well-known pastor of the of the New churches, he is a man of incredible creativity, a wonderful preacher, has established an internet site, many churches as well as local churches. He's used by God today to bless the wider church, he's a wonderfully gifted leader. He talked about a time when he discovered that his uh, younger sister had been molested by a grade six teacher. And he talked about the anger, the bitterness and the hatred and the desire for revenge. And then he writes this, he said... The vast majority of people would agree that my hate and judgmental rage were more than justified. In the course of time, however, I learned that bitterness never draws us closer to God, 
Bitterness is a non-productive, toxic emotion, usually resulting from resentment over unmet needs. I wanted Max, that wasn't his real name, to suffer. But I was punishing no one but myself and those around me who experienced the scalding spillovers of the acid churning inside of me. That's the price we pay for insisting that somebody pay the price before we uh, forgive them. So Jesus meant it when he said, blessed are the merciful. Twice blessed. Not only in eternity, but even here, set free from the burden. I want to end with this thing. In the USA Today, about 10 years ago, they published this uh, independent study by a bunch of psychologists on what makes for happiness. They identified many things that don't make for happiness. And Christopher Peterson, a University of Michigan psychologist, summarized it this way. He said, forgiveness is the trait most strongly linked to happiness. So, even the secular psychologists are coming to the same conclusion. Blessed indeed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As the worship team comes and leads us now in a, two more songs that focus upon God. Because really, it is all about God. God made me forget. God made me fruitful. It is all amazing grace. We're all standing at the threshold of another year. And there are some of you here. There's a lady that came to me after the service last night and said, she said, oh, I am bitter. I'm resentful. I have a lot of forgiving to do. Well, that's the first step. We don't want to stop there. This year, maybe a year where you will make breakthroughs like you've never made before. Maybe like my brother Rick, you didn't even realize that you hadn't forgotten this person. That was only superficial. That wasn't from the heart. Maybe you need to go all the way back again and count the cost. Maybe you need to travel this whole journey. But maybe by the end of 2014, when we are here one year from now, at this point, you will be at the other end of the journey. And you will be standing up saying, hey, let me tell you what happened to me this year. <laughs> That's the amazing grace that is available for us. So as we sing these songs, will you bring... I want you to think about one person. Start with one, folks. The one where the hurt is the most, perhaps. And at least make a commitment to begin this journey. Ask for amazing grace. And may all of that might be just released over you this entire year. And he might truly make you forget the troubles in your father's house and make you fruitful in the place of your suffering. Go in Jesus' name.